Welcome to the Horsewise podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, I'm very excited to have Dr. Stephen Peters, author of Evidence-Based Horsemanship. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hi everyone, I'm Lynn Reardon, the host of the podcast and head coach at Horsewise. Today I have Dr. Stephen Peters. Dr. Peters is the author of Evidence-Based Horsemanship along with his co-author Martin Black. And Dr. Peters is literally a neuroscientist. He specializes in brain functioning and he has spent an enormous amount of time studying exactly how the horse brain works. What I found tremendously interesting about our conversation was how Dr. Peters was able to really pinpoint all of those horsemanship sayings that we kind of have heard and have hopefully practiced a bit in our work, that they are actually based on horse brains, on how horses' brains operate. The horse really is a learning machine, and every time we work with the horse or ride it, we are literally rewiring their brain. Without further ado, here is Dr. Peters, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Well, welcome, Dr. Peters, to the Horsewise podcast. We're so excited and honored to have you on as a guest, and I know that your schedule is extremely full, extremely busy, so thank you again for coming today. Well, I'm glad to be here, and uh, the more people that search out knowledge, and that's a difficult thing to do. You may think it's easy, uh, but if you go on a Google search and you talk with all your friends and you get 15 different opinions from 15 different people, we're instead of searching out knowledge, you really have to almost um, sort through all, all, the, all the stuff that's out there. And it's not all reliable and valid information. So it's not an easy task. So hopefully you and I are going to work a little bit, our little piece here in getting some good information out to everybody. Well, and that's an excellent point. I feel that right now we're in an information overload, good, bad, and different all mixed together. And the ability to discern, to determine what is the most reliable source of information or to filter out information that is mixed. That's the worst, right? Where you have a little bit of good information planted in the middle of a lot of bad information. And uh, I, it's my goal with my podcast to bring on the show people like you who are devoted to knowledge, who are neutral, objective scholars in, in their respective fields, and who have taken the time to really understand and produce good material, research material, uh, whether it's purely in the field, academic or both, that can really add to the body of knowledge and where people can feel like if they're listening to this podcast and they're listening to a guest on this podcast, that there has been a a strong filter applied, right? Um, Which is, I think, partially it's my personal filter, but partially it's also from advice and guidance that I've had from people I consider to be very top in the field. So I agree with you and I appreciate that comment very much. So yeah, it makes my job easy sometimes in that I'm evidence-based. And so uh, I'm very careful not to say anything that's, that's my opinion, but really based on the, on the research. And it's interesting. If you look at this hierarchy of evidence, 
scientific evidence, the lowest rung on the ladder, meaning the, the uh, least reliable, is expert opinion. Hmm. So that's where we go for most of our information. Uh, and then that ladder goes up towards the top where large numbers of horses across numerous studies uh, and, and good experimental design you know, double blind, placebo controlled. Uh, and then you'll get systematic analysis of all these studies, what we call a meta-analysis. And that's almost the gold standard. But you're right, because in, in, in uh, the popular media, what we create is what's called, I call a bologna sandwich, where, where it looks like a, a good sandwich, right? So you've got little bits and pieces of truth mixed in there. Um, but then somebody adds in their personal belief and then presents it as scientific study. And that can really be confusing for people who are looking for, for good information. One source that I, I'd recommend to everybody is Google Scholar, mm. not Google, but Google Scholar. And you can go there. And even though you may not get the whole study, you can read the abstracts, which are a, a summary of what they've done. And those are types of studies that are peer-reviewed scientific studies. So that's a good place to go. I like that a lot. And uh, the study group that I work with that studies this podcast, it's a separate smaller group, is called coincidentally Horsewise Scholars. And uh, I chose that name because I wanted, and it's a small group, it's like 20, 30 people. I chose that name because I wanted to add to it this idea of we're not being random. We're actually studying, not in a, not in a um, coercive kind of tied to the desk way, but we're really applying critical thinking skills. We're we're setting aside pure emotion and engaging more the curiosity side of the brain. You know, for curiosity to work, our emotions have to be quiet. You can't be hysterical and and curious. You can't even be just excited and curious. You have to be calm for curiosity to take place. Of course. Absolutely, as well. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. And a good point. Like I've had numerous experiences where I'm working with a horse and the horse is worried about something. Let's say it's something as simple as a pole on the ground that he has not approved being there, right? It's appeared in the arena and, and he's scared or he's concerned about it. He's nervous about it. And there's that moment where, uh, and I'm gesturing for people who are just listening to this with my, with my head, where that fear suddenly becomes curiosity, like that head tilt changes and the ears kind of perk forward. And boy, that's the moment I'm going to really do my best to convey to the horse a sense of peace and release. Like that's just that state of mind is all we're looking for. You know, if, if he could just kind of associate the release with that state of mind, that really is helpful rather than let's now jump over the pole 10 times and prove we're not afraid of it. Let's instead kind of be, hey, are you in that curious state, that's where I might actually lead the horse away and give a little moment of really, and then come back, so. Gosh, your, your example really touches on a lot of uh, cool neurological stuff going on with the horse. There's an area of the brain, the amygdala, that's related to fear. Amygdala is uh, Latin for almond because it's, a, uh, it's an neuroanatomist, early neuroanatomist thought it looked like an almond, so that's what they named it. So the amygdala, which is related to fear. Uh, actually, it's interesting. That structure is, is built on the end of something called the hippocampus, mm -hmm. which is related to memory. So we know 
we only get a, a one chance for a first impression. So it's important to get that first impression as good as we can because it's going to be linked to memory. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, horses live in the now. They don't. Horses live in the present. They don't. Horses definitely live in the past because the behaviors you're getting are based on their experiences in the past. So that's what they're drawing off of. Uh, and that's the circuitry that they're going over. It, it sounds good. Yeah, it's not like they're thinking way back and holding a grudge. But nonetheless, if you inherit a horse from somebody, you buy a new horse, it doesn't start tabla rasa as a blank slate. It comes with all those experiences that it's had prior to stepping into your pasture. But this little, uh, it's almost like a toggle switch between self-preservation towards the amygdala and curiosity. I want to check this out towards the nucleus accumbens. And that gives them a dopamine hit that's reinforcing uh, the curiosity. So you, you'll almost see this, oh, what is that? And they start to check it out, but oh, whoa, I'm too far. And they start to back up and it's this back and forth. And actually you can almost, it's almost an art in creating this back and forth so your horse doesn't get too uh, stimulated and sympathetically aroused. And then they get up here and now you're just trigger stacking. The more you want to force your horse to check something out, you're, you know, the trailer, the tarp, this, the, that. It's never any of those things. It's where the horse is in their nervous system uh, because they can tolerate anything if they're able to self-regulate and stay within that calm state that you were just talking about. It's like yes. a teeter-totter, right? So, and, and of course each horse is different, each person is different, but let's just say we're talking about one individual working with multiple horses and being able to adapt and go, well, the horse I just worked with did better with a little more uh, maybe clarity, a little more, not firmness. I don't necessarily like that word, but just more clarity. And this horse really needs me to back off for the exact same request. Like I need to present it. And, and just so that this horse stays in its zone for this horse to stay in its zone, I have to be much quieter. And for this other horse to stay in the zone, I have to be a little bit quote louder, or you just change my presence a bit more. And that's a, that's a sophisticated thing because and then of course we have our own emotions that we're dealing with and, uh, and we get caught up in those. The, the, the subject that my Horsewise Scholars Group is studying this month, coincidentally, is fear. And um, we call it the F word, you know, because you hear so many things about fear. And this idea of what's underneath that is not always what we assume it is. And that there are lots of opportunities at a very, when, you know, fear is not all the way up here, all of a sudden you don't go 60, zero to 60. There's all of these opportunities to redirect or uh, calm ourselves down mentally so we can see things and be aware of where the horse is at mentally, physically. And so the stacking is the word that I'm kind of focusing on in your statement there. And I think that's just a profound way of looking at it. Obviously it's it's technically correct from a neurological standpoint, right? Stacking is actually yes. a term, but it's also from a human perspective, this idea of you don't get a stack with one big thing. A stack is a lot of small things that suddenly become one large thing. Let's just use a hypothetical example. Um, you may 
go out into the pasture and walk around with your horse and scratch on them. And you might say, well, I'll take this horse today and put the halter on and you, and you walk that horse out through your gate and it's a narrow gate. So your horse momentarily balks. Usually the feet are a, a pretty good indicator. They'll start to get sticky or they'll get dancing. So they'll, they'll either put on that brake or uh, they'll do a miniature flea. They just, want, they're moving uncomfortably. So if you can wait that out for a minute and let them reset, instead of just pulling through that gate, let them reset and wait for, it takes some patience. But that's, the pause is one of the things that most trainers underutilize mm-hmm. is the pause so that the horse can assimilate new information and feel comfortable. Picture yourself, if you were on a diving board, it, it would be so much more comfortable if you could walk to the edge, look off, step back, put your rear end on the diving board and dangle your feet in the water, and then eventually jump in feet first. Uh, or think about what that'd be like if somebody were behind you and pushing you. Yeah, you'd either break or you'd get real nervous up there and dance around. And if, you, and if you did fall in and took in a mouthful of water, now what we've done created is almost a traumatic kind of uh, wiring so that you're so upregulated, you don't even want to go near the diving board the next time around. So the, what we're, we have to take responsibility for creating these things in our horse. But back to our example. So we walk this horse through the gate after it's sort of reset itself. We go to the back of the trailer and there's some grass around the trailer. So you let your horse graze while you're grooming your, your horse. Uh, it, it momentarily has a little concern and looks to you as you put the saddle pad on. So you hold it out there and let them investigate it with their vibrisi. I, I wanna tell you about the vibrisi real quickly. Those are not whiskers like we have. Those are actually sensory organs. They don't have pain in them. It's a hair follicle that you could cut them and people do some, it's illegal to shave them off in some countries now in Germany and Belgium, I think in France, because that's exactly what they are. Once they get into the face, there's a a neuron that's going to fire to tell that horse where they are in space. Um, So they can avoid that maybe nail sticking out of the manger or, uh, Watch how close they can get to an electric fence mm-hmm. you know, by using those, those vibrisi. So they use the vibrisi and the saddle pad. You know they're okay with that. This idea of, oh, my horse is training me not to put the saddle on, so I'm not going to do all this sniffing stuff. The horse continually throughout this course of, of interaction is asking you one question, am I safe? Mm-hmm. They ask it again and again and again. And if you can answer it, they build more and more confidence. Their window of tolerance gets wider and wider. So we go to the back of the trailer. Now we're saddled up. The horse balks momentarily. You let them put their head down because it takes at least a half an hour for their eyes to completely adjust going dark to light or, or, or back again, especially dark to light. Um, that's something to be aware of. So they get on the trailer, you drive, and off you go on your trail ride with your friends. Day two comes around. You're a half hour late. And just as you're heading out the door, you look at a bill that you thought you had paid and you haven't. Oh, now you're getting aggravated and irritated. 
So you march out there and you're wondering why none of your horses can get caught. Right? I just swatted a, there's a wasp in here. There's a, so you wonder why none of them get caught. You catch your horse, you start to come back through that narrow passage, your horse balks and you pull them through there. Now your horse is fidgeting all over the place uh, and you've got them tied up there in the trailer and you're, you're trying to put a saddle pad on a dancing horse. So three times already they've asked, as you, you had mentioned before, the stacking, they've asked you, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And you really haven't answered them. Now they come, they balk momentarily at the end of the trailer. You yank them aboard because you're late. Um, and off you go. Now you get on your horse, you ride past this big rock to catch up with your friends who are already down the trail and your horse snorts, looks sideways and bolts. And you say, that dumb horse, you've been down this path 25 times. You haven't been down this path when you're so full of norepinephrine and you're so mm. juiced up that that explosion, where did that explosion happen? Way back when you left your house. Mm-hmm. That's where your that trigger makes, stacked. That makes total sense. And, and people will often say after that, that, you know, bolt, they'll be like, that happened all of a sudden, like out of nowhere. Came out and of it, nowhere. It came out of nowhere. Like I had no idea. And it, and, and it, it's really fascinating to me how unaware we are of our own bodies, our own state of mind and how it's affecting our own bodies. Uh, and part of it is, you know, due to good things, you could say technology has made it so different in the world. Now we no longer have to physically work in order to eat. Now, it used to be that if you were going to eat, you were pretty body aware because you were tilling your own fields for your own food back in the day. And now we have the luxury of, you know, a much more comfortable lifestyle. And so that can be in a way a positive thing, technology, but people, they literally often will almost have constant out of body experiences and they won't realize that they are exhibiting so much tension or whatever's happened in their day. And then they bring that to the horse, a prey animal, a herd animal whose very uh, chance at success and being alive in, in the wild would be to determine danger based on what herd mates are doing. You know, if my, if my herd mates are tense, I need to leave. If the herd boss is, is edgy, I need to you know, be prepared to leave. And we don't really see ourselves in that role. You know, it's just, to me, it's, it's been really an interesting part of this horsemanship journey. The more aware I get of myself in the better control not in a rigid way, like I'm controlling my emotions, but the way that I understand how my body is interacting with my mind, I have so much more sympathy for the horses. I understand so much better uh, what it is they're maybe trying to tell me in a way that might seem really subtle or a little thing. When I teach people, the main thing we work on initially is haltering and leading your horse. And I'll work with people who are pretty high level competitors and they're like, why are we doing this? It's like, because everything about what's going on with your horse and you is present in these moments, these first steps, literally. So. Yeah. No matter how many blue ribbons you've won, that doesn't necessarily qualify you as a, a specialist on your horse's nervous system. Right. Right. And oftentimes if you're making a horse do something versus helping them find the way to figure something out, that's, that's different, especially if you're task oriented. And if you're task oriented and on the clock, right. that's where we really get in, in trouble. And then horses will get sympathetically aroused if things are unclear and they're confused. 
But one of the problems is, is not only are we unaware of our own emotions, but we oftentimes punish the horse for showing us exactly how they're feeling. When they're saying, I'm too anxious, or wait a second, this is not right, or I'm feeling so threatened, I'm to the point I'm going to fight, that's all information. You wouldn't want your horse to hide that from you because then it's just going to come out and haunt you somewhere else down the road. So that's a gift saying, okay, look, you're not right here. Let's go back. And sometimes going back isn't where you think it is. Let me give you an example there. Let's say I'm going to, I'm going to trailer load with my horse today. Um, and maybe even thinking of the task of trailer loading is not the way to the mindset to go at it. But you're getting your horse. All these are neurological exercises to get your horse comfortable enough because if they're comfortable enough, they can do anything. Right. You know, what are you teaching them? To go forward, to go back, to canter, to lope? I'll go show you some horses in the wild that already know that, by the way. They didn't have a human you know, necessarily teaching them to do that. So let's go back to trailer loading. Here's a nice way to start. How about checking your own emotions while you're driving to the barn mm -hmm. and see where you're at and check in? And how about just looking over the fence at the horses and saying, what emotional impact is this having on me? Or is my brain still at work? Or am I still having an argument with my boss? Or are other people watching? So now um, I don't want to make any mistakes. So I'm already edgy and and aggravated and, and uh, nervous. <clears throat> yeah, so, so you get your horse and you start walking towards the trailer. Start looking for the first moment that the horse shows any kind of uh, reaction to the trailer. So you start to walk and all of a sudden his head comes up a little bit. All right, I saw that. I saw that and I know you have some concern. Right there, not three feet from the trailer, your horse has told you, because all horses are different, your horse already told you right there, let's start our training. This is where I need to start our training. And that's where you allow you, because they've asked you right there, am I safe? So you may want to wait there and then let your horse's head come down and start to relax and a little licking and chewing, and then move a little closer and look for those spots your horse will begin to recognize that you're giving them enough time. Mm -hmm. And that builds their confidence as well. You know, you come to a stream and your horse hasn't crossed the river and you spur them across. Your horse knows that, that faced with something anxiety producing, they're, they're likely to be between a rock and a hard place. I'm going to get punished or, you know, I'm going to have to just dive into this. Well, they're way up here in their nervous system. How much learning versus reaction do you think is going on? Versus, yeah, versus walking up to that stream, letting them put their head down. By the way, people yank their heads up all the time and they can do, be doing a couple of things. One, they have binocular vision. They have depth perception that crosses in front of them. So oftentimes they're putting their head down in rough terrain or with a, a pond or something to see how deep that is or what's the three-dimensional look uh, of that. So we're yanking their heads up. We're already putting them at a, 
at a disadvantage. Oftentimes, they're trying to self-soothe, which is good information too, the calming signals. Oftentimes, there's tightness in the facial nerves and the trigeminal nerve. And what they'll do is they'll rub their face. They're not necessarily getting the flies off. It's like having a Charlie horse from tightness, and then you rub it out. They're calming themselves by rubbing their face on their forelimbs. You don't have to yank their head up. They're actually trying to help you to reset their own, their own nervous system. But learning occurs within this window of tolerance. For us too, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of sympathetic arousal is good. We need that for attention, mm -hmm. to get the horse's attention, to get a student's attention. If you're in the back of the room with your head down on the desk, you're really not going to get much information. You know, uh, but if uh, you really want to do well on a test and you know you need this information, you can be up there and focused for this fear that, gosh, I'll get a bad grade if I don't if I don't pay attention. But if we go outside of that, where the anxiety is too great, like in an inner city school where a kid might be wondering, how do I make it home safely, safely. without a gang be beating me up? So how can you focus on algebra when you've got that? So really what we wanna do is start creating positive expectation for the horse. If we can create positive expectation, the reward is just on the other side. They can start to tolerate more and more stress because their reward relevant searching behaviors that they have, they'll search out that dopamine hit Nature's designed them that way so that they'll go look for that water hole or the pasture with the greenest grass. So, and that will overcome the amygdala telling the hippocampus that no, this is a bad situation. So the more that we, you're actually rewiring your horse's brain. That's what you're, you're doing. It's it really wired. You're really yeah. setting up for optimum learning, right? So I think sometimes people um, might consider their horses to be <clears throat> static, right? I got, I have a quiet, I want a quiet trail horse. I have this horse and it's gentle, it's quiet. And, and that's the end of the story rather than I have a horse, which means automatically I have a learning machine, <clears throat> so to speak, a horse that a horse is designed to learn and to <clears throat> change and adapt just like any other creature. So if stasis is your goal, if you don't want to have the responsibility for setting up those learning conditions for your horse, you might want to look at a four-wheeler, you know, where you don't need to ever uh, do that because horses really are very interactive creatures. That's, I mean, that's what we've bred into them, but it's also what nature put in them as well. And I feel like one of the most uh, rewarding things about owning a horse or working with horses is that they require us to learn and to grow too. You know, all the good horsemen and horsewomen, they talk about that they're working on themselves and they don't mean I'm working on my perfect leg position. So I'll get this super high score at a show. They're talking about inside. They're working on their insides. They're working on, uh, you know, being not only more aware and those technical things, but I always think of it as being ultimately uh, growing your character, right? So that you become the kind of person who can uh, catch when your horse is getting concerned at an early 
phase, you know, of anxiety, or you're becoming the kind of person who's excited to teach your horses things rather than, you know, I just want this very static kind of creature. Um, and that's the thing that's exciting about, to me, about working with horses and people is helping people see that and then watching the horses just sort of flower under that change in the person. You really owe it to your horse to, to get out of the comfort zone and experience new things. Because all the things that you avoid, um, here's how our brain fools us. We have something we're a little nervous with. Maybe it's for some people, you know, it's just speeding up so that they all, you know, they don't, they're okay at a trot. But when you get, start to get speed and they're going to canter a lope, they start to get a little nervous. So, okay, I'm just going to trail ride and I'm not, not going to go there um, with my horse. <clears throat> So you begin to avoid that. So any movement that speeds up now becomes this big boogeyman, this, mm. this avoidance. And your horse has not gone there either. Now, short term, it feels good. Look, I'm trotting and I didn't die. And my brain's telling me I didn't die. And that felt good, right? But it's a short-term relief. What happens is that the, the, you start avoiding more and more things and that window gets bigger and bigger. And so your window of tolerance actually shrinks more and more. So you're shrinking your world. Now, I'm not saying go out there and get, tie yourself to your horse and gallop on day one. Right. <laughs> but if you can just, if you are aware that you're starting to feel a little nervous and then tell yourself, can I stay in this a minute more? A minute more. Can I stay on this a minute more? And you may find, well, maybe two minutes more. So two minutes more and then come back down. Actually, what you've done is slowly widen your window of tolerance. Your brain tells yourself, hey, I did that and I survived. Because otherwise, we're famous. We have a big frontal lobe that the horse doesn't have. And so we can make up all kinds of stories. We do. Everything's a story. You know, my horse can't do this and that because of this. I probably shouldn't tell you. But, but you have to. I, yeah, now that's yeah. <laughs> out of the bag. You know, <laughs> my friend Martin Black, who, who uh, worked with me on evidence-based horsemanship, our book, you know, he has hearing aids. And so I saw him take his hearing aid and put it in his pocket. And I said, uh, well, I, I had to ask him afterwards. And so a woman was telling him about her horse. And she went on and on. This horse came out of such and such, such. This is his lineage. You know, he jumps here. So he's probably been abused by a cowboy somewhere in his life. And the story went on and on and on and on. And I asked Martin afterwards, I saw you take off your hearing aids. He said, I have to let that woman tell her story because she needs to tell her story. But none of that matters. That horse is going to tell me everything I need to know about what its life's been like or what's going on. Once I talk to that horse, but there's always got to be a big story. So we create these, these stories and then we truly believe them. And sometimes that can really restrict our interaction with our horse. It takes the freshness away of an interactive relationship. I agree, to I agree totally. It's basically the frontal lobe fable syndrome, right? Where that frontal lobe just goes wild. <clears throat> I call it creating movies. You kind of create this whole movie 
and you and your horse are the star. And, and there's nothing you know wrong with that technically other than it blurs your awareness. And um, just to share with you my background a little bit. So I didn't grow up with horses. I worked in offices and came to horse horses as an adult. And uh, through a strange series of events, which we won't go into here, I ended up running a racehorse adoption ranch in Texas. It, you know, the year before I'd been in Washington, D.C., being a director of finance and administration for a university think tank. And now I'm doing this. And to say that I was underqualified is beyond an understatement. OK, and um, so there I am. And uh, I thought we would just get a couple horses, you know, senior horses or whatever. And the first year we got 40 horses and, and there they were. And we had very little money as a nonprofit. We were very uh, modestly budgeted. And I was running a, a ranch, which for Texas is small. It was 26 acres, but for me it was huge because I grew up in the suburbs. So I'm like, what is going on? And uh, anyway, I didn't know what I was doing. And in some ways, ultimately, that ended up helping me. For two reasons. One is somebody gave me a, uh, a bootleg copy of Ray Hunt's Turning Loose video. And I looked at that and I was like, I don't know what that is, but that's it. That's, that's what I would like to emulate, whatever that is. And the second thing was that, uh, of course, I didn't have any knowledge in horse training or horse showing. I had done uh, some riding. I'd had a, a couple of horses of my own, but I had not grown up thinking that this is the way, there's a certain way you work with horses. So these horses were there and it became painfully apparent that unless I worked with them, nobody was going to adopt them. And since there was no big budget for trainers, which ultimately also ended up being a good thing, I would kind of take them into the round corral and I would just sort of look at them and go, well, I don't know anything, but this horse seems to be nervous about this and more relaxed about this. Or I don't know anything about horses, but I definitely noticed that if, uh, if I'm on this side of him and walk this way, he'll come toward me and he'll go away if I do other things. So I would just work with each horse as an individual in these very small ways. I'm not going to tell you I went in there and, and did finish training at all because I did not. But I developed a relationship with them because I think they sensed that I was uh, at the very least really focused on them. And I was very aware that I was nervous and didn't know what I was doing. But I was like, well, I can go slow. I'll, I'll go five or six steps with this horse. I'm a little concerned. Um, I'm not gonna mount him, but I'm gonna, maybe I can saddle him. And I would saddle him and it would go well. And I would do some things with him on the ground. And I'd be like, okay, I don't think I'm gonna get on him, but I can take him to the mounting block and see if I can put my foot in the stirrup while he stands still. Will he yield his hindquarters? And then, you know, I'm riding him. And they're like, well, I don't think I could ride him very long, but let's see if we could stop. Let's see. And that's how I, progressed very slowly, very um, tentatively, very non-correct by professional training standards. And I became more and more interested in the form of horsemanship that, you know, someone like a Martin Black is obviously, uh, you know, steeped in the history of. And that was the thing that, that changed my perspective. And then ironically, we would start adopting these horses out and professional trainers would come and they wouldn't understand how to lead the horse. And this is not to denigrate professional trainers. I mean, they're under a lot of pressure to produce a certain result for their livelihood. And it doesn't involve, no, none of their clients want to see their horses lead well. They want to see them jump well, or they want to see them you know, do well in the sorting box or whatever it is. So I'd be like, how can it be that I know this and you don't? Like, that just seems really strange to me because I have no background in this. And then from there, the, the charity began teaching and then 
we were working mostly with youth interns and then adults kept coming saying, well, I'd like to be in the LOAT program. And I'm like, well, you're 38, you're a little, you're a little too old to be in the, in the youth internship program. So I started a side business where I teach very, I mean, what I consider very basic horsemanship. And that's where the Horsewise podcast came about too. Very non, uh, again, I never present myself at all as any kind of an expert or certainly not a horseman in, in, the, in the category of, of these you know, folks who've really studied it their whole life. But everything that I have learned, I learned from the horses and from watching them. And it had to be very practical. I'm a very, I used to do accounting work. I'm very practical. You know, I'm not all about just how do, how do I feel about what I thought happened with the horses? Like, I need to know that what happened was real. So that's kind of my background in it. And that's why I found your book so fascinating. You know, also reading more and more about things like polyvagal theory, all of these elements that are showing the, the true physical, neurological basis for the things that I learned through, you know, the classic Vicaro horsemanship, you know, letting them soak, set it up and let them find it. You know, these are all these things that actually track perfectly with what scholars and scientists such as yourself are putting out there in practical, I, I feel like your book is a very practical guide for people to understand physically what is happening. So. That's what Martin would always say to me, as he said, you know, since we started to work together, I realized that that Tom Dorrance and, and Martin had, when he was working at a big ranch in Nevada, uh, he would have Tom Dorrance come out. And Tom Dorrance was sort of a, actually somewhat shy and uh, a diminutive man. So, you know, he wasn't overpowering horses. So he'd come out and train the, the hands at this big gamble wine cup ranch, million acres that Martin was, was running. And he'd say, you know, I, I understand now that Tom was actually a master bartender. What he could do is he'd mix the neurochemicals in those horses' brains. So You've got one that's frightened and too anxious. There's too much norepinephrine going on in there. How do I reduce that? And how do I reduce this cortisol, this worry? And how do I find oxytocin, a bonding uh, uh, neurochemical? And how do I find dopamine, which is reinforcing to my horse? And so it's that that chemical mix to create an optimal. And the nice thing about allowing your horse to stretch that envelope is that you can get what Martin calls special forces horses. So that's the reason to not stay within your comfort zone. What he calls a special forces horses is this horse is, has had enough experiences and been able to know it can self-regulate itself. It can take its own comfort zone along with it into any situation. And he said, I don't know how these horses would ever really panic. They're now in a place, now that's not desensitization where they get flooded because that's checking out. And you already talked about dissociation in people, horses too. You know, you, you get that old, those trainers that used to say, run them around the round pen and watch. Their head will face outside and they'll zone out and just go through the repetition. You know, until they're so tired, you can set on them. Have you really created a learning situation there? No, you, you haven't. Um, so it's that, that self-regulation. And I want to tell you, because you're talking a lot about the horse-human interaction, um, 
about a fascinating experiment that was done to just drive home how, how sensitive horses are to their, their riders. One, one thing people can do, and I won't go into it here, look up Clever Hans, the story of Clever Hans, if you've never heard mm-hmm. about that, about how uh, perceptive horses are to small uh, movements in, in, in people. But they did an experiment where they would take novice riders and some expert riders and they took, uh, they, what they tell them is, we're going to lead you into a barn individually, close the door, and then we're going to run at you and open and close a big golf umbrella. And we want you to be prepared for that. Uh, and so that's the task, being prepared for whatever your horse is going to do under that situation. So prior to entering the barn, they looked at cortisol levels and saliva. They took blood samples, heart rate. Um, respiratory rate in the rider and in the horse. So they'd lead one rider in, close the barn door, and they wouldn't do anything other than just lead the horse and rider outside the barn and retake those, those measurements. Well, what they found is that uh, even prior to entering the barn, there were increases in cortisol level, heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, in the novice riders, and somewhat in the horses. And most of the expert riders, uh, it was uh, pretty standard, pretty balanced. They went into the barn, they came out on the other side, the expert riders still had uh, balanced heart rate, There there was no increasing, but in the novice riders, and in their horses, there was a tremendous increase in cortisol, heart rate, blood pressure. Nothing happened. No one told the horse. The horse wasn't overhearing. Without, right, right. Right? So the only way that the horse could have known that something was not right was that it was transmitted from the rider to the horse. And it was enough to create anxiety, increase cortisol stress levels in the horse just from the rider. So that's how important it is to be aware of your own impact on your horse. That's fascinating. And one of the other elements that, again, just for me, I discovered inadvertently, that's why, I mean, I wish your book had been around then. I would have been like, oh, this is perfect. But, you know, you know, we kind of fumble through things until we find the right sources or until the books get written is this idea that uh, a shut down horse, a dull horse is not a safe horse. It's a horse that is actually much more unreliable, really. And uh, I was riding in a clinic one time and uh, uh, I, I, had, I, had a, I still have this horse, he's a great horse. This horse is very hard on the sleeve. You know, he's, he, he's been made Broadway dancer. You know, he, when I got him, he'd been a weaver. He's very emotional. He'd actually had, um, uh, and it's, this is just kind of incidental, but it, no one knew he had an extra set of uh, teeth in the back molar. So he had tons of scar tissue in his jaw. He was in pain a lot. No one knew. It's just one of those odd anomalies. Um, to this day, our veterinarians bring their trainee veterinarians or the vet students who come to study with them. And they'll say, we're going to have you do this horse's teeth. And they won't tell them that the horse has extra teeth to see if they'll catch it. It's like the whole thing. Anyway, 
so he was very flamboyant and uh, he get he would get very excited in new places. So I spent a lot of the clinic short serpentining and kind of whatever was necessary. And that was fine with me. Like I was learning and I felt very supported in that environment. And the horse, like I always knew where he was at, right. He was always like, I'm ups- I'm worried about that. And I'm like, I can see that. Thank you for, thank you for telling me that. Right. It gives me a lot of information. And, um, you know, I felt very comfortable on this horse from an athletic partnership perspective, you know, it's like a dance team. So we fit well together as a dance team. So I never felt like, oh, I'm going to, I was just like, all right, well, we're going to, we're going to do things that are a little different. I would listen to the teacher and no big deal. Right. But most people looking at the, at the clinic would be like that poor lady, you know, her horse, she can't even do what the other rest of the class was doing. But I was like, it's working for me. So there was another horse in the class who was a really sweet horse. Um, one of these really like gentle horses, very, very quiet, very, very kind you know, the whole thing. And I remember looking, I looked at that horse wistfully a couple of times, like, why don't I have a horse like that? And I'm like, well, I really like my guy. It's a little energetic. He's kind of like me, right? I'm a high energy person. I'm like, I was, I would kind of ponder that as we short serpentined, you know, for, you know, 25 minutes or whatever, be like, what, what is in me that is coming out in this horse? It was just this very kind of relaxed thing. And that, but I asked myself the question, you know, you know, I can get a horse like that other one. Why wouldn't I want that? And I was like, I don't know. I I don't think I would want to ride that horse was what I thought to myself. Not that it was a bad horse, but there was just something there that I couldn't quite. I just was like, no, I think I like my guy. I mean, yeah, it's not as convenient maybe. Well, toward the end of the clinic, it was one of these just odd things. Something got in that other horse's blind spot and it scared him. And he wasn't used to being scared. And he took, he bolted, like we all had to just like, he just bolted and the rider came off and handled it really well, right? Not, not hurt, which was great. But the, the degree of change in that horse was really fascinating to me. I'd never seen anything like that. And I was like, I wonder if I had under the surface picked up that that wasn't real calmness, nothing wrong with the rider, nothing that the rider was doing, but you know, a little bit older horse horse that had maybe been like the quiet horse, maybe, maybe had been a roping horse at one point and just something got in the blind spot and it got scared and it was just, it couldn't handle something. Right. And there's my guy who's like, I can't handle anything, but he's very manageable in the sense that you know where he is. And uh, so some of what you're talking about with that too, is the awareness. Like I would be more comfortable, not that I'm saying I want to ride wild horses and my guy certainly wasn't wild, but there's something about that knowledge coming back that I find more reassuring than not knowing at all what's happening beneath me. And most people don't quite have that understanding. So they'll kind of go for the shutdown horse or they'll, you know, um, just not recognize that sometimes you need to let the horse be a little nervous about something. It's, it, you don't want to go shut that down. So I sometimes work with 4-H kids, um, we do a horsemanship buckle, the horsewise horsemanship buckle, where you get rewarded for groundwork with your horse and, and things like that. And I've seen some of these young kids uh, and they're, they're good riders and their horses are good. And, uh, and every time the horse even looks at something, they'll stop and they'll back it up, just back it up, like back it up. That's what their trainers taught them to do. Like, don't look at anything. And then the horses are like this. They're just kind of looking down at the ground. And I'm, I'm always trying to gently encourage them. Hey, you know, it's okay to let them look. It's okay for them to be nervous. Let them see for a second, pet them, maybe, you know, do a little leg yield. When you back them up, they can't see. They want their heads way down. They can't really see properly, right? Whatever it is they're looking at, they're just telling them to back off and get away. And anyway, 
I'm getting off on a tangent, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Do we want to punish uh, attention? I mean, or because if you're getting punished for, we have what's called a reticular activating system. It's in the brainstem and leads up to the brain. It's like a constant radar. It's in us and in horses as well. You know, it's what's going on with you when you're, you're settled into your movie seat and you're watching a scary movie and yet maybe some creepy person comes and sets right behind you. Now you start looking, where are the exits here? And are there any open seats that I can move to? And you can't really focus on the, on the movie because you're, and let's say you have a past history of trauma when someone's sneaking up on you at night. Now we're so hyper alert that we may not even realize we're watching a, a movie. So yeah, we might be able to sit there, white knuckle it, zone out and get through the, get through the movie. So the same analogy is, is true of your, your horse. The, their reticular activating system is saying something here is, is feeling like a predatory threat and I need you to help me prove otherwise. So that's our responsibility. If we're going to tell them you're not allowed to look, that doesn't mean that concern goes away. What that concern does is just get sublimated. So now you've got your horse where it's starting, it can't fight and it can't flee, and it's concerned about something. So if you know polyvagal theory, we now have fight, flight, and freeze. And freeze is this immobility where they're frozen. And, and so people might say, well, I want my horse to tune everything out. No, you don't. No, you don't. You want your horse to be aware of everything going on. The dog running over here, the, somebody riding their horse over there, the yellow slicker that's blowing in the wind. You want them to be aware of everything, but comfortable enough not to feel like they have to react. And that takes some widening of this window. If you don't widen that window and actually shrink it, and your horse tunes out, that's the danger. Because when your horse wakes up, it's almost like walking, you know, a tightrope over the ocean filled with sharks, right? And then you're not looking and all of a sudden you look down, ah, and you just, you just come apart. Um, also, I, I'd want to mention when riders, many riders become uh, nervous or fearful with a uh, uh, you know, just a jolt, a spook in their horse. Oftentimes they'll restrain the horse. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they don't want their horse doing something, so they'll restrain them under here. So research has shown that restraint stress is really profound in horses. You know, you don't realize it, but you're actually taking away their ability to flee. Now, if they spooked out a rock, let's say the example where you were trail riding and they spooked out a rock or some animal moving in the bushes, you can do a one brain stop that takes you in a huge circle. It doesn't have to be yank the head around like a cowboy and flip over sideways. Watch a horse in, in a pasture. It's like something blows through the pasture that spooks them. They may run 30 feet just mm -hmm. long enough to give themselves a little distance and look behind and say, okay, that's probably nothing. And then they go back to grazing, right? But if you clamp on like a clothespin and you pull their head back, you're actually sending them up more sympathetic arousal. They've gone from feeling threatened to feeling panicked. 
And sometimes you can almost get to a state where self-preservation kicks out and that horse will run through a fence or, or anything. So, you know, you can simply let them move their feet. And actually it's a good time for you to just take a deep breath, sing a song if you want, you know, to just feel yourself as silly as that sounds, because oftentimes we have no clue of what's going on with us. I went to a clinic and I saw Martin working with a woman one time. And he said, you know, I need you to quit pulling on that horse's face and to loosen up a little bit. She goes, I'm not pulling on my horse's face. And, you know, the head was almost bent behind vertical and her legs were clamped on and she really had no clue. And finally, Martin said, drop those reins. Do not touch them. Don't touch them. Just put it on the on the horse's neck, you know, and you could watch that horse return back to homeostasis and reset its nervous system. They'll reset their nervous system. No horse is looking to fight. No horse wants to be panicky. They want to live in that where nature tells them they're most comfortable. Homeostasis. That's where they want to be. You know, and the more we can help them get there, the wider that window opens, the more the relaxed they are, the better learners they are. And so it's empowering. It's more empowering than dominating your horse. We are creating more dendrites. We're creating more Mm -hmm. brain connections. And that's probably another big point. The more you close that window on your horse, I only want a trail ride. We're not coming out of our comfort zone. We only get so many dendrites. You keep reading the first grade primer. You're never going to get, you know, British literature or algebra down the line. But if you keep having new experiences, you'll find your horse is more and more comfortable out in the world. And that's very empowering if you look at it that way. And I th- I'm really optimistic because you and I talked before we recorded and went online and you were talking about how you've been surprised by the increase of viewership and people wanting to, I think we're in a paradigm shift where we, we don't feel comfortable. We know that what some trainer in our past said, spur them harder, don't let them get away with this. You know, we're so afraid of looking bad and not doing right. And, but something in us said, you know, this is not the right way to have a partnership. I don't feel good about treating my horse that way. Something's not right here. And so I think the horse is finally getting a voice. We can do MRIs on horses. We can do EEGs. Horses are getting a voice and actually telling us what's really going on. And it's lifting the covers off of a lot of this old school, you can do something wrong for 50 years, just because it's the way you've always done it doesn't mean that it's, it's right. And you can get it caught in a, a terrible rut uh, that, that works against the best interest of you and your horse. And yet I feel like change is always possible. You know, the saying goes that you know, it takes longer for the person to change that the horse changes in a moment. And one of the one of the ideas I like to share with people I work with is if you want your horse to be more comfortable in new situations, if you want your horse to be softer, or if you want your horse to be uh, bolder, go outside its comfort zone. You have to do that first yourself. You have to go outside your comfort zone, maybe not in the moment with the horse, but you have to maybe seek a different kind of training or different type of instruction. You might have to reevaluate how you do things. You might have to acknowledge that you are the one that is really scared of going outside, riding out out of the arena, not your horse. You're scared. And really, we have to model that for them in a way 
right? And with the whole thing I like to see for uh, horses is it's okay if they get scared or concerned, you know, uh, but can they look me up first before they make the decision to run for their life? Even if it's like five seconds, just checking in with you, Lynn, before I make a, a, that's really what I feel like is sort of the hallmark of the relationship that they'll check in with me first. If there's a zombie apocalypse coming, I want my horse to be nervous about that. I want him to be telling me and checking in with me, what is the next step? And rather than for the goal to be no fear. Um, and the same with this idea of refinement or softness. Uh, you know, uh, I've ridden with some wonderful teachers, you know, and I remember one of them told me, you know, really the, the idea of softness or the soft feel that comes from inside the rider. So if you are wanting your horse to look uh, beautiful for a photograph or for a show judge, and you're get, looking for that soft look, but you're hard and tight about how you execute it, or you're competitive about how you execute it. You're never going to quite get that with the horse because the horse won't, won't feel that softness from you first. You can't release for what you don't know how to acknowledge first. And I think these are things that uh, they sound maybe on the surface woo woo, but you know, again, books like yours, scientists like you, this is what really makes the difference for people where they can understand that this is the reality of nature. This is what has actually been put into the horses from day one and into us. And again, we have a different brain structure and all of that, you know, but, and, and that this is not something that is to be ignored, you know? Brains are interactive. They live wire. So even after this, listening to this podcast, you have some new connections that are connecting some piece of knowledge to another piece of knowledge. And so why not go at it? You're all scientists anyway, honestly. Experiment with your horse and try a new way and just see uh, where your horse is by giving them a little more time and rewire both of your brains together. Because ideally that's what we're looking for is, is this, this harmony that's created. And it's not woo woo. You know, I've spent 30 years looking at MRIs, doing uh, brain dissections, et cetera. So, you know, talking about brains is, is uh, pretty clear for me. It was harder for me to go into the horse world and I'd ask somebody, why'd your horse do that? Well, they're a right brain introverted Sagittarius. I got all these DVDs and ay, 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 you know. <laughs> so you have to kind of wade through that. But your interaction with your horse is invaluable. You're, you're wiring together and just know that. Well, Dr. Peters, I think that's a really wonderful note to end on, other than I know that many of my listeners would want to know, what are you working on now? How can they follow your work most effectively in the future? Obviously, besides reading your book with Martin Black, but also what are you intrigued in? Because we want to follow you. We want to, we want to know what you're doing. <laughs> I know there's a paradigm shift because uh, my schedule, as I've told you, has gotten really busy. So who am I talking to? Equine assisted therapy groups. Uh, I'm talking to veterinary hospitals. I'm talking to university programs. I'm talking to chiropractic classes. It rings true right across the, the spectrum. I'm, I, um, I do a clinic with uh, Mark Rashid and Jim Masterson. And Jim Masterson does a body know, Masterson method mm -hmm. body work with horses. And so this rings true for him that there are traumas created 
you know, even on a small scale in the horse's body and ours too. You know, I read uh, the book, uh, Body Keeps the Score, which is really a fascinating book about how your body actually holds on to trauma, despite what your head is, is thinking. Telling you, uh, yeah. Warwick Schiller, I'm, I'm going to do his uh, summit meeting. Um, I'm uh, talking, I'm going to Scotland to talk to nice. vets and at a, a university program. So it's across the spectrum. Nice. And most of, you know, I am going down at the end of the month with Martin and we always do things with horses. We do things with cattle. Kim Stone's going to be down there and she's a photographer. <laughs> and what we have Kim do is capture lots of images. So if we're looking to see a facial nerve activated in a horse, you know, Kim's on the mission, you know, How cool. we, need some licking, we need some calming signals, you know, Kim. And so Martin and I, we go through thousands of images you know, looking and analyzing and talking with, with each other. I, I'm in contact with a friend, Wes Taylor, who uses uh, variable heart rate monitors with horses, looking largely at how fast can they self-regulate and, and come back down after they've been sympathetically aroused. So, but all these things really boil down to, if I was looking for something, is understanding the horses need to feel safe and to self-regulate, to know that they have an internal locus of control. It's not that they have to do uh, what's told them from the external. If you do to the extreme, that's how you get learned helplessness, too much external control. So having a, a conversation with your horse and giving them internal locus of control is invaluable to your, your partnership. And so really, I've always looked through the neurological window. So if people say, well, how do you know this? Martin would say, how do you know that about horses? I know that Martin would say, I know that only after I've seen thousands and thousands of horses, I'd say, well, I know how brains work. And that's how a horse's brain would have to work in this situation. And so it's constantly reviewing that type of information. But right now I'm kind of on the road uh, talking and teaching to a, a broad range of uh, audiences. Well, we will definitely share in the show notes how people can get in touch with you and follow your work through your website. Um, I know I'm going to try to corral you again for this podcast before the end of the year because I already have 10,000 questions just from this interview. And, uh, you know, most of all, I'd just like to thank you for your work. Like, this is the kind of work that isn't done in over two years. Like, this is a lifetime of work. It's a lifetime of rigorous study and research. Sounds like you expanded your comfort zone quite a bit in terms of working with horses in a different way, maybe than what you had been doing before. And so I, we commend and appreciate you for that. And you're making a big difference in the world. And you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. Well, it was my pleasure. And I'd say the same to you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. If you would like to follow Dr. Peter's work more closely, please go to his website, horsebrainscience.info, and do your best to keep track of his exciting and ever-changing schedule. His work is fascinating, and it is definitely worth keeping in touch with his program. I will also post in the show notes his links for social media if you prefer to follow him there. I thought it was really interesting that Dr. Peters brought up Google Scholars because HorseWise has its own Scholars podcast study group. If you would like more information, please go to horsewisecoach.com slash scholars. 
As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.